Hi, Victoria. How are you? Hi, Katarina. I'm well. How are you? Good, good. Thank you. Happy New Year. Happy Hi, New Serena. Year. What? Happy New Year. Happy New Year. Happy New Year. This is great. Family reunion. Hello. <laughs> Hello. Hello. Ready for some Narong Pong? Oh, I couldn't miss this one. I've been, I took some time off work and I was sick the whole time. Oh, but I did, so <laughs> I did get to catch up on some reading though. Did your reading include the article about neurons in a dish playing pong? Oh, I like to, I like to be surprised. Yeah, me too. Um, did you read anything you want to share about? Well, there was, um, you know, that's not a bad idea. Yeah, there was, there was a lot of substantive stuff that that we could cover. I, Katerina, I noticed you were busy with bookings. January's filling up, huh? Uh, yeah. Um, hi, Brett, how are you? Hello, hello, I'm well, thanks, yourself? Good, good, thank you. So I pinned the, the, the paper on top of the room. I don't know if you wanna change it to a link. That's okay. Link. Well, I've done up this link, which should give people access to some slides. Okay, perfect. Yeah, then let me take that, copy that, and put that instead. Sure thing. Because I have also the paper in the chat, so people can also. Would you like me to make you moderator? Like we, it It's really up to you. Like. Um, Oh. oh, I don't mind. I, I don't. I've only used this app once before, so I'm very happy for you to remain as moderator, as I I wouldn't know what to do. Okay, perfect. Yeah, yeah. Just checking with you. How how are you today? <laughs> yeah, good, good. We've just been been busy trying to get some work to submit a new thing uh, to a journal by next week. Just been kept busy. Oh, that's exciting, though. Yeah, always, always new things coming out, but it does keep us on our toes. What, what about yourself? How's everything going? Good. Somehow that link is not supported. That's so weird. Let me. Mm, it let should me... be if you just open it. I, I did test it on a on an incognito tab, so it should just work. Yeah, we can tell people to open the link from the chat. That's. I don't think it's it's a big issue. Uh, it's just so weird. Like Clubhouse said, it's not supported for whatever. Reason. Me, but it's in the chat, it. right? If you click on it, yeah, it opens. Yeah. yeah, it's in the chat, so so everyone can just access it. Awesome. I thought it might be nicer to follow along, and there's some new stuff in here that uh, isn't just in the paper, because I figured if people have seen the paper, they might want to get some different different data. Yeah. Okay, yeah, we'll definitely refer to it uh, that people should click on the chat link, which is, you know, just as easy, and then we'll keep the paper on top. That's, that's just fine. I was just, it's just weird that it says the link. Maybe it's just me. I don't know, Victoria or Serena, do you want to try to pin the link that's in the chat? Sure. 
sure. I'll Off try. The room. Maybe oh. it's on my. I am able to open the. Yeah, yeah. Thing. Open is really easy. It's just mm -hmm. I cannot pin it for whatever reason, which is not a big deal actually. But it's got some Microsoft headers to it. Maybe that's what Clubhouse is complaining about. But mm. yeah, it could be. Well, we'll start in a couple minutes. So um, thanks everyone for coming. And thank you, Brad, of course, for coming. Uh, we'll wait like a couple more minutes for people to continue coming in. And uh, we'll start from nice there. Nice to meet you, Brett. Hi, I'm Victoria. And we have Hey, Victoria. Hey, and um, so I'm confirming I was also not able to do that. I, I see that it says invalid as well. So we can just That's announce and announce every now and then that the, that the link is there. Awesome. Otherwise, I mean, I can just talk through the through the paper, but I, I thought it might be nice to to show people some some upcoming work that's currently going through uh, that's been presented at some conferences and talk about it in a bit of a broader context. Oh yeah, the slides are gorgeous. <laughs> Thanks. I'm uh, not naturally gifted at making nice looking slides, but uh, hopefully they are okay. <laughs> Oh yeah, they're perfect. Thank you. I was just um, posting on Twitter that we're about to start. And yeah. No, it's always exciting to see also some ongoing, some ongoing work, I think that's always exciting. So thank you for sharing that with us. Yeah, no, it's very happy to. Um, there's another link that um, someone is placing in the chat that they said we might try. Could I do that? Do you want to take a look at it quickly? Uh, that's just a science direct link to um, to the article. Yeah, that's fine as well. Um, I think, yeah, just. Uh, Depends if we want to go off the off just the paper, if we want to go off some slides. It's totally up to, to what you guys are interested in. Oh, the slides are perfect. So, um, yeah. I shared the, the paper earlier because I just, you know, ju I just share, I shared your lab website, like the, the company website, and then the paper, just in case people want to to go back to it that they have the link and uh, yeah i think we can start so welcome everyone happy new year uh and a special welcome to you brett of course uh we are very excited to start off the new year with this really really interesting research of yours so thank you so much and to give the audience a little bit of some information about our guest speaker here today, so you get to know him a little bit. Um, uh, Dr. Brett Kagan, he did his Bachelor of Psychology uh, at Bond University and his Master's of Neuroscience at the University of Queensland, and then his Doctor of Philosophy um, and uh, Cell th Therapy for Neonatal Brain Injury at the University of Melbourne. And um, then he did, um, he had various positions 
including adjunct uh, postdoctoral research fellow um, in Melbourne and senior consulting scientist. And then now he is the chief scientific officer at Cortical Labs. And I, as I said, I put the link to the website of that company into the chat. It's really interesting. You should check it out. It's a beautiful website and has a lot of um, information about the really interesting work Brad does um, in, the, in the company and what the company is researching. So welcome and I'll hand the mic over to Victoria who does our interview section here. So thank you. Thank you, Katarina. And again, Science Society welcomes you, Brett. We're really looking forward to learning about your research. Um, you know, neurons in a dish, it sounds just like a lovely time to hear, hear all about this. And we'd also like to hear a bit about you and to help deepen our understanding about your focus and your process. So my question is, um, somewhere along our lives, we develop our affinities and interests. And it would be great to hear about when you felt particularly drawn toward an interest in science, if maybe you can do a memory scan, and this could be in childhood or anywhere really along your path. Yeah, absolutely. Well, for me, it was a it was like a very gradual process. I didn't grow up in a uh, sort of in in a environment, I guess you'd say, where the idea of being a scientist was even on the table. Um, I, and you know, originally, I hadn't even planned to go to university, but. Uh, I ended I ended up uh, developing an interest to go just I guess for the sake of going. Um, yeah, I think as a lot of people do, they feel compelled to go to study. And I'd done a linguistics course, and we had opened up the idea of uh, psychology and how we understand things. And so I thought I'd do psychology and I'd do law because they seemed like good things to do. And I was fortunate enough to to get a scholarship to the university to do it. Uh, and what I realised though very quickly doing that is that what really interested me was not just sort of the psychological, pure psychological aspects of it, which, you know, you can often compare to like watching a movie. Psychology is the, the movie. What I became really interested in is like, how does the projector work that actually brings out the movie? You know, what happens if it breaks? What happens if we tweak it? And so that led me into an interest more in neuroscience. And it was kind of a step where each time I did a degree, I moved further and further towards the actual uh, more cell-based approaches in neuroscience. Uh, but I always maintain that interest in like how does the how does the movie come about, or in this case, like how does let's say the psychological processes such as intelligence arise, and so that over time led me to these investigations on you know how are how are cells, neurons, brain cells actually working and coming out, and I always was of course interested in the idea of artificial intelligence, but I always had this. Uh, sort of pet theory or pet, pet uh, I, mean, I don't know what the right word is, theory is not quite the right word, uh, intuition I guess might be a better way to say it, of how can you get truly flexible adaptive learning from a substrate such as silicon that is inherently fixed and static. 
Uh, now, of course, that there are approaches, people are looking at neuromorphic and people are looking at other approaches, but it always seemed to me that you'd always have some sort of loss if you couldn't have a fluid substrate like what biology is. And so when the opportunity came to, to join the cortical labs team at the set, you know, at the very early stages at the setup sort of stage, uh, set up a lab and begin doing this work from the ground up, it was just a huge opportunity. And it was a thrill to be able to join and start to actually test some of these ideas that I'd been really, you know, unbeknownst to me developing over the past decade of my life. Thank you. It, this, this, um, I, I'm seeing I need to go and do some more research because I'm, I'm wondering more about just the whole idea of substrate and learning. And it is fantastic that then, then you were offered this, this opportunity. Um, can you, can you take us along a path to, I guess you just have to how you've arrived at the research that you're doing today. That was really step-by-step. Step. But what I was getting at is the idea that great ideas or creative ideas come all the time. You know, like when we're washing the dishes or out on a hike, it's not necessarily when we're pushing those ideas to, to happen. And, and this is what it sounded like for you as such an organic process. And, and welcome, Dr. Shah. So happy to see you. So um, let me moderate you up. Yeah, so, so Brett, I would like at this point to really just pass you the mic and let you dive into your presenting your research. And then, as Katarina mentioned earlier, we're all here to help you as moderators if guests have questions following your discussion. And then also, if people put questions in the room chat, we can also share those with you. So that we hope you just relax and enjoy your time here. And we are at your service. So thank you. Uh, thank you very much. So what I'll do is there's a link that I've shared for anyone who missed it, uh, just at the chat, it's just a, a SharePoint uh, to a PowerPoint presentation. Uh, I thought it might be nicer to show you some slides instead of just talking through the paper. So if anyone has trouble, let me know. You can always revert back and, and take another approach. But otherwise, try clicking that link. And if you just go to the slideshow and you hit from beginning, I've numbered the slides. I'll talk through as I change the slides. Uh, so what I'm going to chat to you, everyone about today, if we're on slide one, is just the advancements we've been working on at Cortical Labs, which is, uh, if you're not, not familiar with it, it's a small uh, pre-revenue startup. Uh, we're based in Melbourne, Australia, and what we're looking at is how can you use biological neurons to do things with? You know, broadly, what we like to call this thing is at this stage synthetic biological intelligence, or SBI for short. And it's the idea that the purpose of a neuron, of a brain cell, is to actually process information. And so if you could somehow leverage that, it would be in incredibly powerful. So if we start the slides and look at it, um, the first one just has a brain spinning around. And I really want to ask the question, you know, what is unique about neural systems? Because when you do biology, there's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of systems. There's a lot of biological systems. They can all do interesting things, but what makes neural systems really interesting? And if you move to slide three, you know, the key thing that, that I believe is fair to say about neural systems is that they're actually displaying this ability to take information and to apply it in an adaptive behavior in multiple contexts. So if you can do a task in one room, you can also do it in another room and you can adapt that based on what's going on. Uh, however, if you click through to this, what you need to think about here is that to be able to actually assess this at a really basic level with just cells, what you have to be able to do is take information from how the cells are working and also provide information back into the cells uh, in real time. 
And that last part in real time is obviously incredibly important. Uh, so if you move to say, uh, slide four, what you'll see is just a very quick, and I'm just going to flick through this very quickly, very quick uh, diagram of how we approached this. Essentially what we did was we took cells, we grew them, either we took them from a human-induced pluripotent stem cells, and this is a type of stem cell made from adult tissue. So you turn it back into a stem cell, and then you can turn it back into a neuron. Uh, and it's really nice because there's no ethical issues here because there's, uh, you know, you're not using any fetuses, you're not killing anything, you're just using uh, you know, cutting-edge biological techniques to make these cells. Or you could take them from mice, uh, which is, of course, necessary for this study because we had to show that it worked on like bona fide neurons, bona fide brain cells. And the only way that you can you know, convince some people is to take them from an actual living brain. Um, I will mention, though, it's very nice to say that now in the lab that we've sort of done this validation, we've moved completely to synthetic systems. So we have no more animal testing going on, uh, which is something that was needed for the initial validation. And then what we did was we took these cells, we put them onto our high-density multi-electrode array. That's the HDMEA. And you'll hear me talking about this a lot. And then we subjected them to this gameplay. If you move to slide five, I'm not sure if many of you are familiar with these. These are called an immunocytochemical uh, uh, stain, what we have here. And what it basically does is it takes markers uh, or types of proteins that can be expressed in a cell, and it has these colors that are able to bind to them. So the different colors shows different types of structures in a cell. So, for example, the blue, which you can see there, just shows all the cells. The green shows the neurons, so actual neural brain cells. Uh, the, the red here is showing the axons, which are these big highways you can think of information that go between neurons. And the purple or pink, uh, depending on your screen contrast, is actually the dendrites, which are sort of the smaller streets of information that come out from neurons. And then if you go to the next slide on six, what you can see here is not only were these cells neural, but actually they were uh, mostly, at least a large proportion of them, were cortical cells, either either cortical neurons, as you can see in the green, the green's showing that, or they were supporting cells, such as glia, which are shown in the red. And what's really important to anyone who does uh, work from stem cells is that you want to make sure there's no dividing cells, because if you have dividing cells in the brain, generally what that means is you have some sort of tumor or cancer that's going to proliferate and kill all the other cells in a relatively short space of time, you know, in a matter of weeks or months. And we had, gen you know, generally speaking, in these successful cultures, we had none of those. That was a good sign. And if you move to slide seven, what you can actually see here is some of the cells on the high-density uh, multi-electrode array. The gray uh, is actually what the neurons look like. They're a little bit fragmented because that's what happens when you do this, this process for this cryo-scanning electron microscopy. It's hard not to have some of the cells break. But generally, you can see a lot of connections, a lot of, and they're very dense. And this is actually one of the less dense, dense sections uh, or pictures that we're showing you, because if we show you the really dense pictures, you don't get to see the, the multi-electrode array in the background. And I think one nice thing about this picture is really to emphasize how different a biological neural network is from an artificial neural network, if you're familiar with those diagrams. You know, they often have, you know, very, very simple, relatively speaking, connections in and out of each individual uh, artificial neuron. And so I think that's an important thing to realize is simply that the chaos and, and uh, the flexibility and the interconnectedness of these neurons far exceeds anything that we can do uh, you know, at any level of scale, either in hardware with neuromorphic or with software with, with artificial neural networks. 
And if you move on to slide eight, you can see here that not only did we have these cells, but over time, what we had was these cells became more and more active and different cell types got active at different times, but they all ended up active in the end. Now, moving on to section nine, uh, this is sort of a reference to what one of my one of the most favorite one of my most favorite studies that have come out in in the last several years. Uh, it's actually you can see here the little mouse with the VR headset photoshopped onto it. Well, it's actually based on this study done by uh, Attinger and colleagues in 2017, where what they did was they put these uh, VR systems on the mice and they changed the relationship between the mouse movement and the visual information it received. And what they found was that when you interfered with that the mouse developed a totally different sort of brain that ended up being quite maladaptive. The mouse wasn't very good at functioning once you took it off. And what this really highlights is the importance of this closed loop system where the actions you do, you receive immediate feedback about. And this, of course, was the challenge we needed for the neurons. It's not enough to simply give information to the neurons. You also have to inform them about the outcomes of their actions. So to put it in concrete terms, if I reach for a glass of water, I must be able to feel my arm reaching and see my arm reaching and see the outcome. Am I successful at picking up the water or am I not successful? If I don't have that feedback and if it's not coupled in real time, I can't possibly learn. It's just, it's just logically impossible without that feedback. And so that's something that we had to develop. And if you move to slide 10, uh, I'm not going to go into this in too much detail. It's more or less just what I was saying, but, it's this idea that there's been some work previously done, uh, for example, Buckham in 2008 and colleagues showed this, that if you do develop a closed loop feedback system, and theirs wasn't quite real time, but it was a good closed loop feedback system, uh, they could actually change the way that these cells were responding. And then if you move on to 11, uh, what you can see here is just a very basic setup where what we did was we had cells onto our high density multi-electrode array, we gave them stimulation, uh, and then we took information out of them from a given region. And you can see here, actually, what we ended up using was this counterbalanced region. Uh, and that basically was a way where we hypothesized it would allow us to put information in. The information was put in in a way that was consistent with the way that biology works. So you can kind of think of it similar to how our visual system works in that when we see something, there's actually a one-to-one -one mapping, uh, which is called a topographic map between what we see on our retina, or what our retina perceives, and what lights up in our brain. Uh, and then we also allowed it to just, and this was more arbitrary, uh, have an output area. And so the system would have to learn that we're modulating which region of the, the neural network would actually result in a change in the environment. And so for, to that happen, as I mentioned, we had to obviously close the loop and allow them to actually see what happens when they move the, the paddle through changing their activity. So in many ways, this is a incredibly, incredibly simple system compared to, you know, even let's say what a fly or a bug, you know, even a worm may, may, you know, have to work with in terms of how the neurons can respond. But we wanted to see could even with this incredibly simple system, could they learn? And if you move to 12, uh, you might just have to push play. You can actually see this movie, which is uh, it's available. Um, also, if you go to spikestream.com or spikestream.corticallabs.com, and basically it's just showing you how this works. And so you have a sensory area at the top. We put information into there. You can't see our own simulation here because we blind it. So you can actually see what the neurons are doing. And every little spike that you see, every little column is a neuron. 
and then they're able to actually move this pong paddle by changing their activity in the regions that I showed you just in the slide before. Uh, and yeah, feel free to go to this spike stream. There's a link somewhere later on uh, to look at. So the question, of course, being, alrighty, let's say that we get there and we build this, this system that actually allows us to take information from the cells, put information back into the cells, do all of that in real time, which is obviously, you know, in itself an incredibly challenging technical feat because there's a lot of information to process in a very little amount of time. How would you actually instruct or inform or encourage or incentivize these cells to play the game versus not playing the game? There's no particular driver necessarily to say that neurons should want to play. And actually this video on the right, if you're in slide 13, uh, is actually real cells playing the game. Of course, it is a, a you know a higher performing culture, but it's not exactly a, a you know a aberration or an outlier. We did have quite a lot of high performing, really high performing cultures. Uh, and so the way that we looked at that is if you jump onto slide 14, it's this idea of the free energy principle. Now, I'm not going to go into this in great depth because it is a very comprehensive theory. Um, but the, the most basic and oversimplified, really, way to describe it is that what it proposes is that neural systems uh, at every level, and so this is true for a whole human as much as it should be for a single neuron, want to minimize what they call surprise. And what that basically means is that the system is predicting what is happening outside of itself and that it wants to uh, be able to map that onto what the future incoming sensa uh, sensations it receives are. So again, if we go to my glass of water example, if I reach for my glass of water, uh, I expect I can pick it up. If I fail to do that, that means my expectation didn't match the reality, and there's two ways that I can deal with that. So if you move on to slide 15, uh, those two ways in short are either better perception, so I can either get better at sort of perceiving how the world will actually be or predicting how the world will actually be, or two, I can get better at actually picking up my glass of water so that my expectations match my outcome. And so moving on to slide 16, uh, that's essentially what we did. We removed this idea of, of uh, number one and it was just limited to number two, which meant that the cells would have to get better. And the way we did that, if you move on to slide 17, uh, which has a you know a bit of a formalized way to sort of look at it, but we won't go into that in any detail, uh, if you click through it and you get all the, the dot points up, what you'll have essentially is that we believe the neurons would try to minimize the difference between the internal external world to minimize surprise. Now, what that means to, again, take the most simplified view possible is that a non-predictable random stimulation could be considered aversive under this model because the cells would not be able to predict something that is truly random. And so if they adopted states of activity, right, where they're controlling those little motor regions and they're doing activity there, and when they do activity in a certain way, it gives them something unpredictable, the cell should want to avoid that. Likewise, if we get the predictable activity, or sorry, predictable stimulation after activity, the cell should find that reinforcing and do more of that behavior. So again, it's, it's a, the, sort of the simplest, even dumbest approach possible to test this theory. Um, but we were working with some really great people uh, like Professor Carl Friston uh, and, and other people like Professor Dil Razi, who's based here in Melbourne as well. And the idea was to actually talk with them and say, look, this is a theory you've worked on. Do you believe this is a fair test of the theory? 
And even though it was so simple, the consensus was yes. And so we're able to go forward and test it and be pretty confident that the results that we got was something we'd be able to interpret, either supporting or challenging the theory. Um, and so that's what we did. And so if you move to slide 18, where I can start to show some learning, uh, it can be a little hard to interpret these graphs. But what I'll start off is just explaining the different groups that we have, because we wanted to make obviously have a number of controls. So what we did was we had a media-only control, which is the control, uh, CTL there. And that was essentially just media, which is what the, the liquid that the cells uh, sit in that gives them their nutrients, keeps them at the right uh, you know, pH balance, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, so it was just media in a dish. There's no way this should learn, but it's a good control. Then we had an in silico control, which was just a computational model with random noise moving the panel. Again, there's no way this should be able to learn. But what it is is the first one's really controlling does the system itself tend towards learning, you know, in terms of the actual physical system. Again, it shouldn't if we've done a good job. The second one is, is the com computation of it alone possible of learning? And again, it shouldn't if we've done a good job. Then we had a rest control, which is where we actually had cells sitting on a dish, uh, not receiving any information and just having spontaneous activity because brain cells, even if you leave them alone, will have activity. Uh, and then finally, what we had was our mouse cortical cells. That's what the MCC stands for. And human cortical cells where they were in a dish receiving information uh, and feedback from their activity. And if you just look at the top right hand, if you push forward three times, you'll see some squares pop up to just isolate an area. And you can look here at the sort of latter minutes of the game and see that generally they ended up doing better. If you jump forward to, to the next slide, which is a bit blocked, um, but that just says investigating learning with the box plots on it. This is a little clearer. You can see here pretty clearly that all three of the control groups, the control, the in silico, and the resting control, none of them showed any change over the time if you compare the first five minutes to the last 15. However, the mouse cortical cells and the human cortical cells both did. And then you can investigate that further on slide 21, uh, which is the next slide along, and we can look at other types of learning. So if this is, for example, looking at the number of long rallies, or the percentage of long rallies, I should say, where it was hitting more than uh, four uh, balls in a row. Uh, and you can see here, same thing. There's no difference, uh, no statistically significant difference between the control and silicone rest, but again, there is for the mouse and human. And if you look at the percentage of aces, uh, you know where we use aces in terms of the, the tennis game, where they've, let's say, uh, they've not hit the ball at all. Again, you can see that this decreases over time, uh, specifically for the mouse and human cells, but not for the, the other controls, and that they end up different to the controls in the end. Uh, but we wanted to also ask the question, you know, yes, they're learning, this is great, but what actually is driving the learning? And so if you look at slide 22, this is looking at something called functional plasticity, which is basically seeing... Uh, how are the cells changing their activity over time is probably the simplest way to phrase it. And if you compare here between the rest and the gameplay, what you can see is there's a dramatic difference over time uh, between when they're playing the game and when they're at rest versus when they're playing the game. Uh, and this is obviously very encouraging, but it's already been shown by other people that, of course, if you give them closed-loop stimulation, their elasticity will change. Uh, what is even more interesting, though, to talk about performance is if you go to slide 23, uh, what you can see here is that if you look at the correlation between the firing in the motor regions and the firing and the sensory regions, either at rest or at gameplay, they're not too different, ultimately, if you just look at the correlation. 
both of them are highly correlated. And that makes sense because we know that brains tend to have a high degree of correlations. And that's going to be true even for a very simple neural culture like this. It's going to be even more true for a very simple neural culture like this, in fact. And that's what we see. But if you jump to slide 24, what's really interesting, if you look at this first graph on the left, it is it is hard doing a presentation without uh, being able to show you guys with a, with a pointer. So I hope you're following along. But yeah, if you look at this one on the left that says average sensor motor cross correlation, the y-axis, uh, when you take the actual mean of these correlations that I showed you in the slide before, there is actually a pretty substantial difference uh, that is highly statistically significant between that. And of course, that makes sense because when you're playing the game versus rest, you need to have a significant amount of correla uh, correlation between the incoming information and the outgoing information. But this doesn't just represent an increase in correlations across the entire system. Because if you look on the next one, the graph that's in the middle on slide 24, uh, and you look at this percentage of exclusive motor region activity, what you actually see, so that's where you have activity in one region but not the other, what you actually see is that there's an uh, an increase in this exclusive motor region activity, uh, which of course is necessary because if you want to move the paddle one way, you need activity in one region but not the other. And so to see more more uh, independent activity during gameplay is of course something that you would require, and that's also what we saw. And likewise, that means of course that there is actually a negative correlation between motor regions. So positive correlation between the sensory and motor regions and a negative correlation between the two motor regions. And this is something that we can sort of intuitively say would be important if it was actually playing the game and, and you know, controlling the paddle in this way. And so we sort of have this validation and this explanation of how the system was changing its activity to play the game. Uh, now, I'm going to just breeze through this next part because it gets a bit technical. But the important thing I want to highlight here is that we're also looking to see uh, the idea of something called information entropy. And that's the simplest way you can describe that is surprise. Does the prediction, when I was talking about predictions before, does the prior prediction match uh, with the expectation? And if not, one could view this as, as a surprise. And a way to formally look at that is to quantify something called information entropy, which is also can be viewed as the amount of randomness in a culture. Now, what was interesting to see is that we found that when we were injecting random feedback, uh, into the cultures, they were in fact uh, increasing the amount of random information inside the game. Uh, now, what's interesting, of course, also is that when the cells are just resting, there's a high, even though there's no difference between you know the feedback or not feedback because there's no actual feedback delivered, so it's showing us that this is actually due to our activity that we're seeing these differences, they do still show a high degree of, of information entropy or sort of randomness in the culture. And so what we did, if you move to 26, was we wanted to make sure, is it actually our feedback that's driving the learning or is it just something else? Is it something else happening? So we had our setup, our stimulation setup that I told you about before, where when the cells behave, they received information that's shown by the yellow. This is slide 26 again, uh, shown by the yellow lightning bolt sort of motif there. Uh, and then, when they got it wrong, they got unpredictable. And likewise, if they got it right, they got it predictable. That's the one that we've been using so far. But we also introduced two other key ones here. We had a silent feedback marked here by the SIL, where they received information about where the ball was, 
And then when they missed, they received no information. And by that, what I mean is we pulled out all the information that was coming in to the culture away. The way you can contrast these two conditions is the first one, you're playing a game, you get something wrong and you get a bunch of flashing lights, right? That's a way, that's feedback. It tells you that something's happened. But the second one would be you're playing a game, you get something wrong and all the lights turn out and the music stops. This is also feedback, albeit of a very different type. Then finally, we had this no feedback loop which is uh, where the, they received information where the ball was, but they actually received no feedback whatsoever about their performance. So if they missed, the game just continued. In this way, there's no incentive for themselves to actually change their behavior in any way to play the game. Yes, they're receiving information, but missing the ball has no consequence whatsoever. And so there's no particular reason they should learn. And then finally, of course, we had our rest, which is what I explained before. And this can sort of be explained here further in slide 27, um, just as a graph, if you find that useful. Uh, moving on to slide 28, which again, sorry, the number is hidden by the graph, but uh, it says different feedback conditions and it has two box plots on it. Uh, what we saw here, really interestingly, if you just look at the first graph on the left, is our stimulus condition. Again, here it's actually controlled against the resting condition because that cleaned up some of our noise a little bit because it took into account culture activity. But generally, uh, you know, not generally, pretty much exactly, our stimulus condition was uh, reproduced with our original results. And secondly, with our silent feedback group, what we saw was pretty much no statistically significant learning, uh, although they did show very, some very slight degree of learning. And as a result, that end, they did end up higher along with the stimulus condition at time two being slightly better than the no feedback. But it's important not to overinterpret what's going on with the silent group here too much. It is a very slight difference. Uh, most notably is the difference with the stimulus condition. Having said that, this does match our hypothesis pretty much exactly and like surprisingly so. As a scientist, you often get random bits of data that just don't make sense. Uh, but actually for us here, it, it did match very well because even in the silent condition, when it misses, even though it's not receiving random noise uh, as a feedback, when the game restarts, uh, there still is a, a random direction. And so there still is an increase in information entropy in terms of what's going into the system. So that's very interesting. Uh, but ultimately, when we wanted to look at this metric I was just explaining to you about before, this information entropy, or do what you think of like the randomness in the culture or the surprisal in the culture, depending on how you want to phrase it, uh, what we found was really interesting was actually the silent group had the highest degree of uh, this information entropy, even though we weren't putting information in. And despite that, uh, it also wasn't showing learning. And so we had to stop for a minute and think about it. So, and think, why is this happening? And actually, after a bit of thinking, it became very intuitive why this is happening. Uh, and simply said, it's because of this thing called a Markov blanket in the free energy principle. Uh, and so if we jump onto slide 29, I can explain a little bit about what that is. What a Markov blanket is, is essentially it proposes it as a statistical boundary that would distinguish one system from the rest of its environment. Um, and so if you jump to the, just the next slide along, you'll see it gives a little idea, just a little graphic here, is that this can be true at multiple scales. So it can be true for a single neuron, a group of neurons, a whole brain or a whole person, all related to what's outside that, that system. Uh, and so the fact that we found here that the higher randomness without stimulation, it makes sense because, as I said before, neurons do fire randomly 
when you just leave them alone. And so they should be highly stochastic when you take away their stimulation because they're trying to recalibrate to the lack of stimulation. This lack of stimulation isn't sort of, I use the turning off the lights example, but it is far more profound than that. Uh, because we actually, as people, never are able to be completely without stimulation, even sleeping, even in darkness. You know, we can always feel the rest of our body. Uh, there's always something that we can feel or see. And so this removal or stimulation is probably quite shocking to the cells in terms of uh, being quite a dis disequilibrium or, uh, uh, event. And so it's unsurprising that they resume to a stochastic or a random firing, which of course would result in this higher information entropy in the culture. But what it suggests is that indeed these neural systems are able to distinguish from randomness inside the system compared to randomness that's coming as information from outside the system. And of course, our neural systems will have to have evolved to be able to do this feature, respond differently to internal noise versus external noise. And, and a classic, you know, very, again, simplified example for this is that I would respond differently to my own thoughts than I would to someone else's voice. Even though both can be considered words, uh, one's internal, one's external, they affect me very, very differently. And so that was a very interesting finding. Now, wrapping this up, uh, I'm going to also show you some other things that are coming out in, in future work. So moving on to slide 31, uh, what we have here is this idea of how does the brain actually change itself? And there's a quote there um, from Cajal, who's one of the pioneers of neuroscience, uh, which I love, you know, anyone could, if so inclined, be the sculpture of their own brain. I have made it slightly more politically correct than it was done back then, but <laughs> uh, I think it's a beautiful quote because what it really shows is that our brains are very plastic. And one process we can do to investigate this is something called neural criticality. And this work was been done with, uh, with a great team and, and led um, by myself and Fruch, who's in uh, pictures in the bottom right corner. What criticality is, is essentially, if you click through to get all the dot points up, there's three of them, uh, this is on slide uh, 32, uh, is uh, this point in a system where it's balanced between a knife edge. So for water, the point between where the liquid becomes steam is called a critical point. In the brain, the point where you have a lot of firing activity that's just like random and crazy, uh, you know, and, and everywhere uh, would be like, very weakly coordinated or something where it's just oscillating and it's just firing like on a rhythm, all of it together, that'd be highly coordinated. So there's a point between those mathematically that's called criticality. And what's really interesting about criticality is that in human and animal studies, it has been linked to a number of features such as uh, cognitive behaviors, fluid intelligence, attention, information processing. Really, people aren't exactly sure the role of criticality. And so we wanted to investigate it in our system. And then the next slide is just a quick uh, sort of technical you know, explanation of what's going on here, uh, essentially how we did the process. I'm not going to dwell on it now. And uh, if yours slide like mine froze there, you might have to just push escape. <laughs> Apologies for that. Uh, but if you jump forward to slide 34, uh, what you can do is see here an example of this criticality where basically what we saw was that there was just huge differences in how the cells were responding when they were at rest versus active. Uh, I'm not going to go into this in, in any great detail, 
But if you jump through to 35, you can see that this was replicated across multiple metrics of, of criticality uh, because essentially it's been found that one metric alone is not well able to capture this complex uh, metric. And so we actually made sure that we checked it across an additional three that have been found to be useful. And then moving on to 36, uh, what you can show is actually that not only are there huge differences in the sort of dynamics that these cells are showing, showing that this organizational reorganization of the uh, cells activity is, is not just sort of simple plasticity alone, but is actually um, very fundamental to the core of how the system uh, reorganizes itself as a system uh, in itself, like as an entire system. So it's quite a dynamic, fundamental reorganization. Uh, and what's really interesting is that reorganization maps onto and correlates uh, statistically significantly uh, with the actual performance. So the H slash M ratio here is hit-miss ratio. So what it's showing is that this link that people have found in you know, humans to be related to performing tasks also matches onto the cells, which is really interesting and shows you how fundamental this criticality process is. And this can be wrapped up if you go to sort of summarize in slide 37, where essentially this is so fundamental that uh, we're able to really group the cells based on whether they're playing the game or at rest, based almost purely on the degree that they're showing criticality. And that's super interesting. Now, leaving aside the biology for the moment, if we jump to slide 38, uh, one of the common questions people ask me is, well, this is all well and good, but, you know, what does this matter when you've got reinforcement learning? How can these neurons in a dish, you know, yes, it's cool from a biology perspective, but functionally and practically, it doesn't really offer us anything that we can't do with reinforcement learning, which is a very fair question. Um, and now beyond talking about the simple facts that, uh, you know, reinforcement learning, for example, or machine learning generally has a lot of uh, things that we still need to solve, such as power efficiency, sample efficiency, uh, flexibility. Uh, we wanted to say, fair enough, let's do the comparison and have a look. And so what we did was we compared three different deep reinforcement learning algorithms with three different types of information input. Uh, and so if we look at the first one, where what we did was we basically just gave the reinforcement learning algorithms an image, same as you know, the most simple approach that people have been doing for, for ages. The key thing, though, that we did here that was a bit different was that we wanted to match it in real time. So we made sure that our system was actually only receiving as many games as what our biological neurons were playing. Because obviously, if you let reinforcement learning, we've seen this for many times, you know, reinforcement learning can be people and Go and chess and, you know, very complicated games. But they do so by batch processing, running at faster speeds than reality and doing many, many thousands of samples, something that's infeasible for, you know, biological organisms to do. So we wanted to keep it fair and say, all right, you each receive the same amount of tries to learn to play the game. And what we found was with this image input that our biological systems were outperforming the reinforcement learning algorithms quite significantly across multiple metrics. However, someone turned around and said to us, but of course they are. Your reinforcement learning algorithms are receiving much more dense information than the reinforcement, uh, than the biological cultures who are only receiving really, you know, possibly a vector of two opposed to, to a far more complicated image-based vector. 
So we had to adopt another one where all we did was gave it a paddle and ball position, which is sort of a vector of, of four. And we did that and we found that our, our biological cultures, uh, it's the same biological data each time, obviously. Here it's just the reinforcement learning data that's changing. Uh, again, massively outperformed it, even more so this time. And then people said, but actually your biological cultures are really only receiving a vector of two. So we, we redid it and we said, all righty, we're going to give them a vector of two. This is as close as we can possibly make to what the neurons are receiving. Let's see how they do. And again, they performed even better relative to the reinforcement learning algorithms uh, in a time match sense. And so what I think we can show here is that reinforcement learning has a lot of merit. For, it's very useful, especially when uh, sample, sample efficiency is not a key criteria. But when time and sample efficiency, or you, rather you're stuck in real time running, you know, based on a real world clock, and you only have limited samples, even with the huge advancements we've had with biology, oh, sorry, with huge advancements we've had with reinforcement learning, biology still has the edge when it comes to being able to learn quickly and cheaply. Um, now, of course, if you, sorry, that was slide 45. So if you move to slide 46, it sort of has a summary here, uh, which is to say, while all of this is very interesting, we do come back to this uh, sort of inevitable problem that I think all neuroscientists face in one way or another, which is to say that these systems, even a simple system like what we're working with, is incredibly complicated. And so the quote, the quote that, uh, you know, I, I love this quote, if the human brain was so simple that we could understand it, we would be so simple that we couldn't. And so uh, even though we can't understand it, what it is interesting to note is that it does seem to have some distinct traits that are promising and advantageous for information processing that we have with biology that we can't yet capture with machine learning. And so to conclude, uh, what you can see here is essentially that this disbrain system that we had was able to exhibit some very limited degree of natural intelligence um, by just harnessing this inherent adaptive computation in neurons. Because uh, neurons or brain cells are just, they're able to behave and process information in an intelligent manner according to some principles. We don't necessarily think we've unlocked, you know, the core principle behind learning. We think what we've shown is a principle. And I think what's really interesting is that it's going to provide us a system to be able to test this more in the future. And so if you move on to the, the sort of third last slide, slide 48, um, we're taking this development of the system quite seriously. And so the previous system that we built was incredibly complicated to program, uh, very difficult to maintain. But what we're in the process of here at Cortical Labs is actually building a simplified system so anyone interested in this can log on. So this is slide 48, can log on, uh, access it remotely, or you can, if you have a biological lab, you can also buy it for uh, on-site development, but that's a bit more expensive. But otherwise, for a very cheap price, you can uh, log on, interact with these cells, try to program to do something, get the data, and, and you know answer whatever questions you have. Because we think this is going to be such a broad and interesting field of research, we're not going to be able to do it all on our own. It's like the early computer stuff. You know, We believe we're at the stage now where you know it's like the early transistor. It's janky, it's ugly, it can do a few things, but it's difficult to make and work with. We want to bring it out and try and introduce and let people have access to a, you know, like a MacBook. You know, you buy it and you can do what you want with it. You can develop what algorithms you want. You can investigate it. And so uh, slide 49 is just another picture sort of other, you know, we're still obviously developing it. It's looking a little nicer than this. This was from a while ago, but just sort of the process of, of it. So you'll be able to log on, um, 
you know, use, use the cultures for a period of time with some very basic Python or JavaScript coding, be able to actually test and, and investigate whatever it is you might be interested in, uh, which will be very exciting. And so to finalize on slide 50, uh, of course, it's not just, um, you know, my, myself working on this. Uh, we have a whole team, um, Hon, who, who's the founder of the company, um, uh, my, myself, uh, the whole team really who've come together as well as our academic collaborators who who've been amazing to work with and even more people that, that I haven't been able to add on the slide. Um, if any of you are scientists and interested in collaborations, you're of course free to reach out. There's my email address um, or feel free to follow us on Twitter or the website has the rest of our socials. So that's, that's the presentation and uh, I'd be very happy to take any questions anyone has. Well, thank you so much, Brett, for this amazing presentation and for sharing that, you know, we can all try it out. Uh, that's really cool uh, that you guys do that. And, um, yeah, really appreciate your sharing this year with us. And um, I welcome everyone to ask questions. I think the questions in the chat, they were mostly answered already. Um, so um, what Jim asked and so on. So um, please go ahead, uh, flash your mics if you want to ask a question. Serena, go ahead. Thank you. Yeah, so wonderful talk, Brett, first off. And I, um, I certainly applaud your result of showing more efficient learning relative to reinforcement learning uh, in all cases. Uh, well done, well done. Um, I'm curious. So a couple questions um, in terms of, and, and I see as you progressed, you, you know, I got more refinement in, in a possible answer, but I'll go ahead and ask the question to see where you go with it. In terms of um, the, so the reward, the connection to reward was uh, you closed the system through, in essence, you, you used the metaphor, the lights and the music went out when it missed. Uh, just a curious thought, if the rules of the game were changed and it was supposed to avoid the ball. And so the, uh, and I guess having it available to the public, one could in principle run this experiment. But if, if it was, if the lights, the music went on, if it missed the ball, I mean, it, it's only slightly more complicated because it gets a choice of how it gets out of the way, but I would imagine it would do just as well. Any comments on that? Um, well, it's, it comes down to the, the incentive and what, what the neurons are trying to do fundamentally. And again, like, I don't think we've fully answered this question. I think we just have sort of one piece of the puzzle and supporting one thing. But uh, the question is like, what is more motivating for a group of neurons in a dish? Is it, is it having the lights turned out or is it having some sort of random, random feedback? And our results sort of suggested that the random feedback in itself was more motivating for the cells. Now, why that is comes down, at least theoretically, comes down to this idea of uh, of information entropy that that I touched on, which is the idea that a, a system, right, like for us to be able to exist and survive in our environment, we need to be able to predict that environment. Uh, if I can't, I'm, I as a biological organism, I am unlikely to survive. And so that's kind of would be one reason, just at this sort of very fundamental physical level why the cells would respond more aggressively or more, more robustly. It's probably a better way to say it, more robustly to, to the random noise than they would to, uh, to the silent feed treatment. 
Well, so I also wonder, um, at slide six, I got excited when you said glial cells were also present. And I'm all fascinated with astrocytes and what they might be doing in the context of learning. Um, you know, some contemporary thinking is that they provide a local kind of gain control, either amplification or damping. So I'm curious if, uh, if you have any thoughts on uh, the role of astrocytes that might have been there and um, whether that, that sort of gain control plays into distinction of internal versus external stimuli or whether that actually plays a role in the direct, um, the, the actual learning process. Yeah, so de definitely uh, astrocytes play an important role. What, what that role is right now, um, you know, I, honestly, there's probably better work th than ours out there. Um, we have some data that, that I wasn't sharing today where we found that astrocytes are really important for, it seems, a network to come together and show um, what's called synchrony, where the network is able to fire together on certain times. Um, but, yeah, there is a lot of work out there sort of just showing that, that these uh, supporting cells are really critical for just basic neurological function. So, I mean, I'm curious, I understand in, in a startup, sometimes, you know, you're forced to be very focused, but are there plans in your term to look at that role at all? Yeah, absolutely. And so that's, as I said, that, that's work that is ongoing. Um, generally, we've found that you do get much better performance with astrocytes, but beyond um, beyond this, like, really basic answer that, like, well, astrocytes and, and glial cells are important, which, you know, isn't too surprising, we haven't really made any, like, startling uh, discoveries yet about how. But as, you know, if we're able to, you know, continue and, and raise some more money and, and do stuff, one of the things we'll be doing is figuring out, you know, which cultures can actually lead to better performance and further refining the system. Because, yeah, as you as you very astutely noted, um, <laughs> startups, you have to be pretty focused on what you choose for. And we really haven't had the, the privilege to dive down into this level of depth yet. But I'm excited to more in the future. But in the meantime, there's a lot of other people doing amazing work, sort of picking apart what makes just at a very basic level a neuron, neural culture or neural system function in terms of all the different cell types. Wonderful, wonderful. And just for what it's worth, um, if were I a betting woman, I would think the astrocytes are somewhat responsible for that learning rate over reinforcement learning. But I'll pass the mic from there. Thank you very much. No worries. Thanks for the questions. Uh, yeah, um, Dr. Shah, Frank, did, did you have a question that you wanted to ask? Yes, thank you so much, Bert. That was a wonderful talk. And my question from you, because you mentioned about the brain dish, and we know that, for example, based on some of the models, like a brain models, we can build in some of the tumors in a dish. And I was just wondering about the effect of the signaling pathway, for example, hypoxia. Uh, for, I mean, it's different when you're talking about the dish, but however, we can think about the uh, hypoxia inducible factors. And I was just wondering during your, I mean, research, did you have this experience? that you want to put your neurons under this condition or not? Uh, which, which condition specifically? Hypoxia? Yes, hypoxia. We, uh, we, we have 
done some pilot work looking at this, uh, including with uh, some supplements. For example, we had a researcher uh, who was on the paper, uh, Dr. Ni Tran, who uh, does investigate hypoxia in neonates um, and was looking at, uh, you know, was helping us with, with our cell culture, uh, but also does this more, more formally in, in animal models uh, and is looking whether creatine can help actually reduce the effects of, of hypoxia and ischemia. Uh, we did get some very promising results, but unfortunately, um, you know, as, as we were just discussing before, uh, this was one of those avenues that we weren't able to sort of prioritize too much at this stage. But it is one that we're excited to explore more more in the future, and hopefully we can uh, recapture these these promising early results more, more robustly with some more research. But, yeah, it's a great question. I think that's one of the really exciting things with this technology is it will allow us to investigate a lot of these questions we have um, not just hypoxia, but, you know, potentially some sort of in vitro disease modeling uh, or even just basic cellular pathways and responses uh, with a new measure that we haven't previously had. And so I think that's going to be a really exciting thing for other work. But there's so many questions. That's one of the big reasons why we want to have this system open to other people. And, you know, we don't want to try and hoard this technology but make it available for others so that all these great ideas, like if this is your interest, if this is your research, you can go out and explore it, come up with the answer, and it can be your answer, you know? Totally. And is there any specific gene that you are, I mean, wondering about or a specific chromosome that you think that possibly can be, um, you know, get under research as an exit? But... Not, not, not at this point, no. We, we, as a, we haven't gone down into those, those depths. So I'll, I'll just be talking sort of from from other other backgrounds, but there's nothing particular right now. I see. Thank you so much. I'm passing the mic to the next person. Hey, Frank, did you have a question you wanted to ask? Yeah, thanks, uh, Katerina. Yeah, thanks, uh, Bradford, for this uh, uh, fascinating, I mean, amazing the work you, you share with us, and uh, congratulations for the new results. And, uh, I only I'm trying to catch up the uh, the details of the the, the setup. That that's my, my I do have uh, some exposures from also as well uh, Clubhouse. Uh, I think with the uh, Friston's work on the uh, free energy principle and the Markov blanket. You know, uh, it's like a, a brain versus the external and data in the intermediate by the action and the sens sensory system, uh, blanket. But uh, 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 your, your drawings uh, are familiar. But uh, uh, given that the, 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 a few earlier slides uh, of your setup of experiments, could you uh, kind enough to repeat a little bit on the uh, how uh, I do uh, get the point that you uh, have a feedback, uh, a flashing light and the music as a feedback. You have two type of uh, uh, neuron cells that uh, uh, motor and sensory and the uh, how many how many neurons are there and how yeah so so number I guess from number four to number eleven <laughs> that that that's uh, uh, if 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 you can yeah that that that'd be terrific yeah so I'll just note quickly like when we say sensory and motor they're actually all the same type of neurons they're cortical neurons these are just things that we. Uh, names that we've picked to represent the sort of information that we're doing. So 
sensory, what we call the sensory region is just where we put information in, right? Those little electrical stimulations into the system. Uh, and then the pattern of that can either be as information for where the ball is, or it can be feedback, right? Depending on the timing and the, 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 the quality of that information. Um, how, how do you how do you how do you, uh, uh, represent that input to the to the protocol? So what we do is essentially we designate uh, eight electrodes in the sensory region, uh, and that basically you can map that topographically to where the ball is relative to the paddle. So if the ball is all the way left away from the paddle, then the uh, electrode all the way left is going to be given little electrical stimulations. And as that ball gets closer to the paddle, this frequency of the stimulation will increase. And so it's quite a, quite a simple setup, uh, theoretically at least, you know, but it, it was a way that we could kind of encode this information and we could test whether or not they would learn. And, you know, to be perfectly honest, like we were not sure whether this very, very simple approach would actually yield anything statistically interesting. Um, and although the idea that these neural systems could learn uh, isn't surprising because neurons do learn, it's what they're good at, uh, I think the the degree and robustness that we've seen, uh, that was surprising. We didn't expect to see such robust results with such a simple system, but, you know, in retrospect, it, it shouldn't be too shocking because neural systems are good at learning, you know, everything from worms to flies to cats to humans like we all do it with the same general neural architecture you know neurons connected to each other so that was really exciting uh in terms of the other slides like five six seven five six and seven are just showing sort of that the neurons are what we think they are i.e that they're cortical neurons that they're on a dish and that they survive on a dish so there's not too much more to say about that um eight is just showing that we get electrical activity that these neurons are actually active and alive uh, and nine is just talking about the fact that we close the loop. Uh, so not nine, 10, and I guess 11 to some extent is just showing that we close the loop. So what that means is that the neurons have activity, uh, they behave in a certain way, and that what we're able to do is re read that activity, give them information about where the ball is, and change that information when the neurons change their activity. So it's just this closed loop that as they behave in a certain way, as they have activity in a certain way, uh, that changes that they're future incoming information about the world. Same as for us when we move around, the information we receive changes. So, so yeah, that, 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 that's definitely very helpful. So the, uh, in both part, both the sensory and the motor, the, the, the interfacing, you're using the same eight uh, electrodes, like HD. Yeah, we are, we are in, in this particular study. Um, and that, that's a limitation of this particular work as well. Um, we, were, we were only able to really consistently route eight electrodes for technical reasons. But in future work, we hope to be able to access many more. And that will give us far better ability to input information. I, I got it. That's already uh, uh, groundbreaking. Uh, great. So how many neurons? Uh, about 800,000 approximately, you know, give or take. Obviously, when you when you're planting down cells in a dish, uh, approximately is sort of the best you can do. But about eight hundred thousand on average. I see. And how do you prepare? Uh, you you mentioned some training. Um, 
Yeah, so how do we prepare the neurons, you mean? Uh, yes, yeah. Without going into too much sort of technical detail about the cell culturing, uh, for this first study, it was either uh, we took them from from a little embryonic mouse, which you know, as I said before, is not ideal. But now we've been able to move away from all the animal testing, uh, or we are able to test them, uh, basically generate them from a pluripotent stem cell, which uh, we can generate from like adult tissue. Uh, and you know, there's a there's a lot of literature out there, sort of on on how you make induced pluripotent stem cells. Uh, but those are the two processes we made. So they they're highly technical and take would take quite a while to sort of explain. But if you're very interested, there's a lot of stuff out there on that. Oh, thank you. That's a great answer. Thank you. Yeah, thank you so much. And um, the question I had, which I found was really interesting, or Maybe if you could make a prediction. So when you have addictive states, um, you kind of have to to really have like um, real predict, uh, addictive states and uh, even in animals, you should always include some randomness and some pain. Like uh, so the cost should get higher and higher kind of to get the drug, let's say cocaine or something. So just having the drug available uh, very predictively does not really produce real addictive states. Would you think that this model would be in line with that? Or do you think that, you know, it's a more complicated system and that, you know, we would need a different model to explain that? Uh, no, look, I, I think that you can definitely frame these uh behavioral studies like uh, you know addiction studies in animals in terms of the free energy principle uh i the degree that it relates to to our system i, I don't think is that much uh because our system's so fundamental and basic we're, we're really looking at uh you know a very core uh essence of neural function uh, if you wanted to phrase it in, in sort of the, the addiction studies though in terms of the free energy principle like what you could look at is saying essentially that these neural systems in this case let's say a rodent uh it becomes more motivated to try and achieve something that's rewarding when it's unpredictable uh purely because it's not sure when it's able to access it again right there's uncertainty and so the way that it's trying to control this uncertainty is by modifying its behavior to seek out the rewarding substance uh, when it is there uh, even more so, right? It's trying to overcome the uncertainty. And that's sort of what the free energy principle says that it should. Now, obviously in addiction, that becomes maladaptive, but one could theoretically see why it arises uh, and it could be adaptive, highly adaptive, to uh, more aggressively seek out a rewarding thing when that reward is uncertain than when it's certain, again, to control for the fact that, you know, very nature that it's unpredictable. Um, but having said that, I think that we should always be really careful comparing that to what we've got, right, in, in the cells in a dish because they're not a, they're not a rat. Uh, they're certainly not a rat. They're not even, you know, they're not a human. They're certainly not a rat. They're not even really a worm. Uh, you know, the best you can compare it to is like, something like a worm or a bumblebee in terms of neurons, but it's not even three-dimensional. It's just two, really, you know, a single monolayer. So it's such a simple system um, 
but that there are parallels at all between the more complicated systems and like the fact that we could make these conclusions uh, or, you know, implications, I think is still pretty exciting. Yeah, yeah, that that is really exciting. Would be interesting because then also it turns into kind of a very inflexible state. Um, uh, this, you know, if it's supposed to be a real addiction, it would be interesting if you could uh, release some micro RNAs that are known to be kind of um, upregulated and so on, and then see if at some point the system doesn't um, yeah doesn't predict well anymore it kind of gets stuck into a specific learning pattern and then it just gets stuck and doesn't you know adapt well anymore to the um, to the environment that would be really interesting if you know if that would be enough or um, yeah so Anyway, I would be, so yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's so many great questions to explore. Um, and I, you know, I really hope that people can pull apart some of these questions using these systems in the future. Like that'll be the real, you know, for us, like that's the real success to see people come on, grab these systems, do some experiments that weren't previously possible and, and get some exciting answers. Um, you know, as I said, like we really do view it as like the most basic level at this point, like early transistor and like, you know, in a lot of ways, like our thoughts, like it's interesting, but also it's not going to be as interesting as what comes next. And that's the really exciting thing about it. So uh, trying with different microRNAs to see how that's changing, uh, you know, the, the function of the cells or drugs or, uh, as was mentioned before, different, different supporting cell types is going to be a super, super exciting thing to see. Yeah, another thing is like... Um how fragile the system becomes if you induce like aging <laughs> you can rescue um, by transplanting new uh, young mitochondria yeah like there's so much so well <laughs> well it's a very interesting future. i uh yes i i can't say too much about that except that we are investigating uh that at the moment in some aspects uh, with some great collaborators so hopefully that work will be out soon, but I can't talk too much about it. But you have touched on something that we're looking at. <laughs> oh, interesting. Yeah, that, that's really cool. Yeah, because we had the guest a few guest speakers around rejuvenation and stuff. And uh, we had the one that uh, successfully transplanted mitochondria, like I think around this time last year. Yeah, so I thought about that if you could you know, rescue maybe a lot of different mental health disorders by doing that. That would be also really cool yeah. to see. And um, VTR, welcome. Um, do, do you have a question for us, for Brett? Yeah, thank you, Katrina. Uh, you always bring me into interesting rooms. This is one of those. And uh, great, thanks for bringing me on stage. And uh, hi, Brett, uh, hi, rest of the folks. Um, I'm interested in this topic, although I wouldn't consider myself an expert, but I had a quick question. Uh, actually, I had two questions. First is, um, I, I think you were trying to go a little bit into like how these things are trained, how neurons were trained on this. It seemed like this is a constrained sort of environment, right? So uh, I, I, my question would be like in an open sort of system, uh, like you know, biological systems like operate in like an open environment, how would 
like what would be those criteria for learning and whether those skills will be transferable like one um say ping pong skills that it has acquired like can it um i guess my question is how flexible the learning is is it generalizing it or is it just responding to the stimulus like um and that's like is it at an expert level can it improvise like all those sorts of things like the metacognition aspect of it so i don't know if i was able to make it into a question but um, <laughs> i hope you uh, get a uh, you know something out of what i've said yeah. um yeah there's a lot there's a lot there to unpack uh i'll address two key things one is the the flexibility can it learn to do other tasks i can't talk about too much on that because it, it is actually some ongoing work but what i will say is we have tried with other tasks we have seen some really interesting results uh, and we have seen that you know again perhaps unsurprisingly the cells uh, are able to adapt but uh, i'm not going to talk about that too much now because that's going to be you know hopefully what our next big work will be and i'd love to share that with everyone once it's fully validated uh, we we always like to be a bit cautious with what we're sharing with people until it's gone through the whole peer review process and and we you know we're very confident about it uh, so I won't talk too much about it now other than to say we're looking at it and seeing some interesting early results. Uh, the second thing you mentioned was this idea of uh, metacognition. And that's a great question. And I mean, one of those questions, of course, is what even do we mean by metacognition? Uh, or even, you know, what do we mean by intelligence? What do we mean by, by sentience? Uh, and that, that comes down to trying to really understand, like, one, what are we all talking about? What would that even look like in a culture? And then two, like, does the culture display it? So we use the word sentience here in the sort of informatic sense. Uh, and we're, we're very clear about that in the first paragraph of our paper. It means essentially that uh, they're responding to sensation or information in an adaptive way through their own dynamic internal processes, right? This is not the idea of consciousness. Uh, it's, it's far simpler than that. Whether that's the right word or not, uh, that's something we're working on with a number of you know researchers now. It's obviously going to be a long process, but we are trying to develop a guidelines for the right words to use in this field because honestly, we don't even have the right language to use. Like a lot of people, not a lot of people, but some people got a bit upset with some of the language we used. You know, we thought it was fine and certainly in line with a lot of other literature, but fair enough. Like in some cases, it's unclear. Uh, and when you're developing and you're working on sort of these, you know, I think it's fairly safe to say, you know, bleeding edge of, of areas, we just do not have the right words. Uh, but there is nothing that we've seen to suggest that these neurons have anything like meta metacognition or consciousness or even awareness. They are the most simple processing, I think, you could probably almost get down to. I guess you could look at individual neurons to be even simpler, but so it's the second most simple process, I think you could say, of how a neural system might work. Um, and I think to summarize that, it would be to say that intelligence and sort of these more aware processes, they, they're not necessarily mutually uh, required. Uh, you could, we, we believe you can break them down. And uh, I won't go into that in too much detail, but we wrote a commentary recently uh, and have another paper that's under review now discussing that in more detail. 
Thank you, Brett. Uh, I was just had a, a, a one last question in my mind. So, yeah, you clarified that uh, really well because I was just about to read the paper when I thought of asking you a question. So that sentience part is, uh, cl uh, you, know, cl you know, clarified that. Uh, what was what I was going to ask is so if you have and this is going to be really quick. Uh, the the, um, the 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 cells that you are using to compute i'm just wondering what sort of applications um you know future applications like how this computation is advantageous than say um you know uh, our um, machine based computation like if it's 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 general uh, it's uh, not generalizing the tasks but computing on on uh, environmental stimuli, uh, stimuli, stimuli uh, in some ways it's slightly slower than the machine, like the, the, the thing we call compute, right? Uh, 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 yeah, I was just trying to imagine like what sort of, uh, you know, applications could be built as a result of having these things compute. Yeah, so it all comes down to the right tool for the right job. That's how we kind of conceptualize it. Um, there are some things like reinforcement learning, CNNs, uh, you know, obviously, you know, we see the stuff with like chat GPT three and four and all these things. They're doing some awesome work. Like it's really amazing. Uh, but that doesn't mean that they can do everything. And one of the things they can't do is act and work in the real world in real time with limited data. Um, thank you. Um, so if we, want to think about applications where a neural system or, or what we're calling a synthetic biological intelligence system could be useful. Uh, it's basically anything that you or I or a dog could do better than, than reinforcement learning. So an example I'll give is that for someone who's visually impaired, uh, a dog is one of the, you know, guide dog is one of the best uh, aids, you know, there's others as well, but you know, it's still a great aid for someone who's visually impaired. Uh, and that's because a dog is able to adapt with its biological intelligence in the real world. It runs off, you know, leftover food, <laughs> you know, dog food, very cheap uh, energy supply. Uh, and yet it's able to be, you know, very dynamic, very intelligent and useful. Uh, now, a dog, of course, isn't going to do very good at, at um, you know, coming up with, with like chat GPT-3 type answers, but it's got its own skills. And so that's really, I think, long term. And we are talking about longer term here. That's where this sort of SBI will, I think, be very useful. In the shorter term, it's going to open up more research avenues, as we've discussed with some of the people here today, uh, as well as, you know, we think the drug testing and disease modeling uh, specifically is going to be very useful because at the moment, like preclinical testing for neurological diseases and illnesses uh, is very, very poor at predicting whether it will work in humans. And so we hope that this will be a step to actually give us a better test. And that's obviously a much shorter term solution and so these are these are just some of them sort of like long term and short term where we think this technology will be really helpful cool thank you there is a startup that i i forgot the name of uh, which did this was in san francisco at conicule i mean they were trying to build a vetware i'm not sure where uh, what their application what their did you say was, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. They um, they're, they're looking at uh, basically a synthetic nose, which is interesting work. Uh, slightly different though. I, I, you know, I think it's it's great that people are exploring the, uh, you know, all the various applications that synthetic biology, synthetic biology can give rise to, and so I think it's really exciting to see where their work's going. 
Um, I think a little different to us, but yeah, equally, equally, I think will have great applications. I have a follow on to that. Um, you know, it's a whole interesting application area in the in the genre of edge computing and energy efficient computing. It'd be interesting, and maybe you have looked at it. Um, it'd be interesting to see a comparison of. You already showed that the biological systems outperforms reinforcement learning in terms of uh, how efficient they were able to learn. And um, it'd be interesting to compare the energy demand in terms of the computation that went into the reinforcement learning versus the, me the metabolic demand of, of the neural system, just as a just as a basic, I imagine it'd be orders of magnitude apart. But yeah. in terms of edge computing, where the you know there's a there's a power demand, there's a need for real time processing and online learning. Yeah. And so you know, as you covered the reinforcement learning, they need to do batch processing. They're you know they're off on these server farms. That this and that. So, I mean, there isn't an energy efficiency argument that makes it particularly appealing if, you know, in, in going for particular application areas that need to be embedded in edge computing. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and the energy efficiency is a huge, you know, it's a huge feature uh, that I think makes biology particularly exciting, especially with the growth of uh various machine learning approaches like it actually has a very significant uh sort of environmental impact in terms of the energy usage and so we think that is another great reason to explore these alternatives oh brett really quick oh, can i squeeze in one more question based on this um uh, uh i'm not gonna ask for permission i'm gonna ask it anyways uh so uh, uh this is an interesting um uh, uh, way to look at like the energy efficiency and, and, and trying to do it biologically, which is much more efficient and uh, 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 less energy consuming. But I'm, I'm curious to know, like running these experiments also, um, like how much, um, like um, using this in the lab, and I, I'm, I'm guessing you'll have to keep these neurons in some sort of, a, you know, wetware environment or of some sorts, right? They can't be like out and about. So that will consume some amount of energy, but maybe not as significant as, like, say, running, uh, um, you know, huge servers uh, for training, like, a million examples if it can learn through, like, 10 examples, right? Um, yeah, I would love to hear any, any thoughts on that, if any. Yeah. Um, look, what, what, all I'll say about that at this point, especially just, just with time, is... Uh, yes, of course, you're right. There are overheads at the moment. We are working on systems that will have significantly less overhead and actually keep the cells alive for longer, uh, such as uh, we've mentioned this a few times um, publicly, so I'll mention it again just in brief publicly, although more details will have to wait, is this uh, closed-loop perfusion circuit that will basically be like a little life support system for the cells, uh, which is, you know, nearing, nearing the sort of prototype uh 1.0 is nearing completion and we've had some nice very early results with that. But I will say that like, I think that it's not really a fair comparison to start trying to do the, the comparison now, just because it works too early. Uh, I think theoretically we can look at the, let's say the energy saving powers of, of biology versus reinforcement learning. And, you know, it's obviously just many magnitudes more efficient, the biology, uh, 
But we're still too early to really say or judge to know what's going to go on. Uh, and I think what's going to be really interesting is as the system develops, becomes more mature, more robust, to see what exactly is going to, you know, be the final the final run sheet, if it were, or even, you know, maybe not final, but closer to a more developed system. And, yeah, it's, an, it's a new area. It's a growing area. There's, you know, people working on it, more people joining this area as, you know, as the months go by. And so it'll be exciting to see once it's developed more and make better comparisons once we're further along. Sounds good. Thank you. Yeah, thank you so much. And I know you have to go, Brad, so I want to thank you uh, to come here and share your really interesting work. And since we already pointed towards so many future uh, publications, I hope you'll come back one day, maybe in the fall or so, uh, to share like the, the future publications you're working on already uh, that we talked about. That would be really wonderful. So. Well, like, likewise, thank you for having me. Thank you, everyone, for your amazing questions. It's been a pleasure to share it with you. And, um, yeah, as I said, if anyone here is a scientist or researcher uh, who's interested in collaborating with us, please feel free to reach out. Uh, you know, we always love working with, with excited and, and intelligent people. Yeah, wonderful. Uh, thank you so much. Um, we really appreciate it. Happy New Year to you. And... Um, yeah, I uh, hope we'll hear you back again someday. So thank you. Enjoy your day. Thank you. Bye. Thank you. And thank you, everyone, for thank coming. Um, this was such a great discussion. Thanks for asking questions and uh, engaging in the discussion. And uh, we started with this room here today, um, and we'll have more rooms coming up um, uh, next week again. Uh, we'll have, again, a relatively dense, um, you know, schedule of like two to three rooms a week. So um, that will be also interesting. So I hope to hear everyone back soon. And uh, yeah, it was nice hearing everyone. I missed this, <laughs> although it was just two weeks, I think we took a pause. But um, yeah, I already missed it. And uh, thank you everyone for coming. It was great hearing you all and, and chatting with everyone. Thank you. Thank you, Katerina. Happy New Year and Happy New Year to all. Uh, I'm, I'm wishing, you know, if possible, more material and uh, related talks in the future. <laughs> okay, great. Thank you. Katerina. Yeah, thanks. With love. Um, yeah, and if anyone has suggestions for schedule, I, the January is kind of booked and I have a few rooms for... Uh, predicted for February and March, but if anyone has suggestions what people would like to hear about and learn about, uh, yeah, let, let me know, let us know, any of us, and I uh, will try to reach out to the authors and I can never promise anything, but if people have time, hopefully they'll come and discuss their research with us. So thanks, Happy New Year, and yeah, hear you all back soon. Close the room in three, two, one. Bye, everyone. Thank you. Bye.